As we come now to God's word, would you join me in prayer again? Father, we need your help. You have taught us uh, that you have given us your word to teach us, to reprove, to correct, to train in righteousness, that we may be mature and equipped for the work that you have for us. Would you do that in us tonight? As we look at your word, would you teach us? Would you encourage? Would you comfort? Would you correct and reprove? Would you train that we might grow in maturity in knowledge of you and love of you and in knowledge of your love for us? And we can't do that on our own. Would you be at work through your spirit in our hearts and minds tonight as we learn from you? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to be looking at 41 to 46 as we continue going through the life of Elijah. And as you're turning there, I want to take a minute and remember where we are. Uh, we are jumping into the story. It has been three and a half years since it has rained in Israel. In response to this nation rebelling against God, God has withheld rain from them. They have not even had dew in the mornings. So you can picture what this might mean, what the ground might look like. It's parched, it's dusty, it's hard. In the last chapter, we found the king of Israel, King Ahab, searching high and low for some area of the land that still had grass so that his animals might not die. Uh, food for humans can't be doing much better. Uh, there are not a lot of crops that grow in this kind of environment. How different this is than what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when God is describing this land that he is going to give to his people. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. This land is now desolate. Uh, we have experienced a, a difficult year, I think we can all agree on that, a year with increased focus on mortality, uncertainty, increased tensions and difficult choices. Certainly not the same as what they were going through, but maybe it gives us a little bit of sympathy for where the nation of Israel finds themselves weary, nerves near the surface, and vulnerable. And now we come to the end of a long day. So the people have been summoned by King Ahab and have gathered at Mount Carmel. They witnessed a showdown between God and Baal, which we heard about last week which God was vindicated as the one true God. And then they took these 450 prophets of Baal and they killed them down the mountain. So three and a half years without rain, a day which has included killing 450 people after watching them cry out for hours before Elijah rebuilt the altar and God sent down fire. This is where we come in our passage tonight. 1 Kings 18, 41 through 46. 
And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like, the man's, like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Want us to consider three things as we look through these verses. God's promise secured, God's power displayed, and God's mercy revealed. I want us to look at God's promise, God's power, and God's mercy. First, let's look at God's promise secured. God had already told Elijah that he would send rain. In the first verse of the chapter that we are in, he tells Elijah, my pages are sticking, that's not what he said. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So God has told Elijah, I'm going to send rain upon the earth. In fact, Elijah is so confident that God will make good on his promise that he has already heard the sound of rain. Before the rain was present, before he even asks for it, but possessing God's promise, he hears its approach with the ears of faith in verse 41. And so he tells Ahab to go up and eat and drink. And then Elijah does something that may seem a little strange. The text doesn't overtly say that Elijah goes and prays, but in the New Testament, James gives us some insight. In James chapter 5, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This passage, combined with the way that uh, Elijah clearly prostrates himself before God in this text, makes it clear that uh, God is, Elijah is asking God to send rain on the land. But does that strike you as a little odd? God had already told Elijah that he was going to send rain. Why would Elijah need, God, need to ask God to do that which he had already promised? Too often, I think our human reasoning concludes that a promise makes prayer unnecessary, but I want us to learn here from Elijah that is not how he saw things and is not how we ought to either. In fact, just the opposite. Rather than making prayer irrelevant, the promises of God are to motivate us to pray, to teach us what to pray for. They should shape and mold our prayers as they instruct us what to ask for and encourage us to ask for them with confidence. And this is what we see here in Elijah. Promises in hand, Elijah retreats to the top of the mountain and bows before God. And we aren't given his precise prayer, but in faith, he prays that God would send rain, perhaps 
along the lines of Solomon's prayer from a few chapters earlier at the dedication of the temple. Solomon said, When heaven is shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. And you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. The people have turned away from God, and he has withheld rain in response to that. But now, we have seen in just the last few verses, they have started, at least in some degree, to turn back. They have prostrated themselves before God and confessed that he is God, and then they have helped Elijah to kill these prophets of Baal. So along these lines, Elijah prays, and he prays with expectation, watching for God to answer. Elijah is certain that God is going to respond, and so as he prays, he sends his servant to look over the sea and to look for this response. So the servant goes out and looks towards the sea and comes back and reports, there is nothing. So what does Elijah do? He keeps praying and he keeps watching. It is interesting to note here that God does not always respond to Elijah's prayers in the same manner. In verse 38, just a few verses earlier, Elijah makes a very public prayer for fire and God responds immediately. Here, God makes Elijah wait. In the next chapter, we'll see a, a place where Elijah prays and, and God says no. But Elijah continues to pray, even as he continues to send his servant to look out to the sea. Seven times, the servant looks and reports back. The first six times, the answer is the same. There is nothing. But the seventh time, the servant finally sees the start of something, a small cloud in the sky. Before we move on to what that cloud means, I want us to pause for a minute and ask if we pray like Elijah prays. Well, James tells us clearly that Elijah is, is in many ways no different than ours. He had a nature just like ours. He is rightfully regarded as a great man of God. He's counted among the greatest of the prophets. He was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus in his glory. So, a lot of things that set Elijah apart from you and I. And yet, at the end of the day, he is a man like you and I. He prayed and God withheld rain. He prayed and heaven gave rain. Do we, like Elijah, allow God's promises to guide our prayers? Do we view those promises as direction and mandates to pray? Do we pray for the fulfillment of 1 Corinthians 10 when we are being tempted, praying for God to make good on his promise to not tempt beyond our ability to endure? Do we pray for wisdom, which he has promised in James chapter 1, to those who will ask? There are countless promises in the scriptures which can and should shape and direct how we pray. Do the sights and sounds of our physical world make it hard to see or hear with faith, or do our ears and eyes of faith get the first and final word, as they did with Elijah? Do we expect and watch for God to respond to our prayers? Or do we generally walk away from prayer, assuming our words have gone up into some sort of void or fallen helplessly to the ground? And speaking of walking away, do we walk away quickly? Do we give up easily when things don't happen right away? Or do we buckle down and keep praying 
Brothers and sisters, let us be a people who cling to what God has promised, to what he has said. Let us pray and pray and pray some more in faith, even as we watch and wait for him to act. As he did with Elijah, he did act. So let us now consider the power of God displayed as we move through this passage. God has already shown himself to the people of Israel in sending fire. Uh, As you can imagine, fire is not what this parched people were longing for. So in accordance with his word and in promise to Elijah, in response to his prayer, God sends rain. That little cloud grows into a dark storm that brings great rain. But it was important that the fire come before the rain, lest there be any doubt about the source. Baal was a fertility god in the pantheon of Canaanite gods. He was even called the Lord of rain and dew. God wanted there to be no confusion about who was sending this rain and the dew, so he sent fire first. And then once Baal had been exposed as impotent and the prophets of Baal slaughtered, then the rain comes. God wants the Israelites to know that he alone is almighty God. He is the creator of all things and he rules over all creation. Nothing happens apart from his word and his work. Not a drop of rain can fall without his permission. This concept is known as the doctrine of providence. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines this work of providence as God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. The idea that God governs all that he has made, that he alone is supreme and he alone is to be worshipped. This may be a scary thought to some of you to think that there is a almighty, supreme being who controls everything in the universe and we simply are at the mercy of his whims. So how is it that John Kelvin, the famous reformer, can say of providence that ignorance of this reality is the ultimate of all miseries and the highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it? He can only say that if, in addition to being powerful, this God is good and has a character and a nature of mercy. If he is both powerful and merciful, then having him in control is a comfort. If he is not, then it is terrifying. We have seen his power. Now let us look at his mercy revealed. The first mercy that we see is in the rain itself. It was a great trial for people to endure three and a half years of drought. It was a trial that they deserved. They had turned away from God. They knew what he expected, and they did not abide by that, and they knew what the consequences would be when they rejected his word. But what a mercy that it was not longer, that there was an end to this time, and it was not allowed to go on forever. It was contained. This drought was restrained by the wisdom and mercy of God. I think this is some of the misery and the blessedness that John Kelvin was talking about. If trials in this world can be measureless, who can endure? 
But if they are restrained, if they are guarded, if the limits for how far they can go are set by our merciful God, then that is truly something in which to find comfort. It is such a mercy that trials come to an end and God was merciful to the nation of Israel by bringing this drought to an end. Such a relief for them to have the water on this ground, to have the water on their crops, to have the water on their skin. We see uh, even more specific mercy that is shown to Ahab. Imagine what Ahab is thinking as we begin this day. He has just watched, standing by, as his prophets are first humiliated and then executed. What must he been expecting from this prophet whom he has so openly despised? But instead of uh, the execution that he anticipated or the judgment that perhaps he anticipated, through Elijah he is spared. First Elijah sends him to refresh himself, and then Elijah warns him of the coming storm so that he can get off the mountain in time. And in addition to sparing Ahab, God gives him the chance to repent. We have this strange scene where The hand of God comes upon Elijah who girds up his loins, to use the old English phrase, tucks his robe into, or tucks his, yeah, tucks his robe into his belt and runs ahead of Ahab, ahead of his chariot, all the way to Jezreel, 17 or 18 miles. This is one of my favorite images in the Bible. Try to picture it, a king in his chariot watching the prophet of God outrunning his horses, It must have been somewhat comedic to observe, uh, to watch this go by if you were standing on the side of the road. And yet, for Ahab, it must have been an unnerving scene as he tries to understand what is going on around him. Remember, behind him is a storm, and now in front of him is a man running with supernatural strength. And God is in both think that we are meant to connect the hand-sized cloud with the hand of God upon Elijah in this text. God's hand of power stands both in front of and behind Ahab, and this serves as both a warning and an opportunity for the king of Israel. Psalm 104 says that God makes the clouds his chariot, and the chariot of God in this storm is threatening to overrun and engulf Ahab and his chariot. But the prophet running in front of him is an offer of what could be. The king riding forth preceded by the bearer of the word of God was how things were supposed to work. It would be very natural for servants of the king to go ahead of the king and to announce their arrival, to herald their coming. It was a subservient position. We see this in Esther when Mordecai is led around and... uh, Haman is is ordered to lead him around. It's humiliating for Haman, and yet Elijah is willing to take this place in front of the chariot to run ahead of uh, God's king in the manner that this was supposed to work. Royal power seeking prophetic direction. The prophet was willing to go ahead of the king if the king was willing to submit to God's word. Ahab need not be at odds 
with Elijah as he has been for years and years. He could be helped by him. So Ahab is given the chance to repent. If he will submit to God's word, Elijah will be his faithful servant. Ahab has seen a confirmation of God's power, and now he is given a choice. Submit to God, allowing the word of God to lead and guide him, or be consumed by the storm of God's wrath. We will learn Ahab's fate as we continue to work our way through 1 Kings in coming weeks. But for now, I want us to recognize the grace that is offered that one who had been such an instrument of wickedness, leading God's people away from the true God and to worship a God who was no God at all, that one such as Ahab is given the opportunity to repent is remarkable. It is truly amazing grace. Which is really good news because that is the kind of grace that you and I desperately need already seen that James reminds us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours to encourage us to be bold in prayer, but we have to recognize that Elijah is not the only man in this story whose nature we share. We are all born with a nature like Ahab's. Scripture is clear. We are all by nature haters and enemies of God apart from his mercy. Paul in Ephesians 2 says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yet God does not leave it like that. That is not the end of the story as Paul continues. But God, God intervened, being rich in mercy through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And so, as we leave our text, as we close this Palm Sunday, we can look ahead to this coming Holy Week, to the power of the one true God displayed, and raising his son from the dead, and to another righteous man who will climb a mountain to pray to secure God's promise of salvation that grace might be offered to sinners like us. In Jesus, all of the promises of God are satisfied and secured. Because of him, we can pray with confidence any promise that God has given and know that it is yes and amen. Good Friday and Easter put the power and mercy of God on their most glorious display. This week, we have a chance to gaze upon the mercy and the power of God. And if you have never turned to God in repentance, then I hope this week is a warning and an opportunity set before you, and that maybe this week will be the week where you turn to God and find in Him salvation and life everlasting. For those who have been saved through Jesus, as we consider the death and resurrection of Jesus this week, let us worship him, the one true God who is beyond compare, and pray, watching and waiting for him to act in power. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as you revealed yourself, to Ahab and to Elijah and to the Israelites, would you reveal yourself to us? As you were merciful to the Israelites and to Ahab, would you be merciful to us? May we rest in your grace. May we trust in your promises. May we hope in your power. 
as we wait and look to you. Would you help us to live as men and women in light of the reality of who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.